Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 34 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is about the Michael Cohen criminal investigation and search warrants. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Today, we will review the Michael Cohen investigation and the search warrants executed just last week, Monday, April 9th, 2018. The controversy surrounding these events uh, are interesting and require some close inspection. It's always worth trying to determine what is true, what is exaggerated, and what is outright false. So on April 9, 2018, FBI agents executed search warrants at Michael Cohen's office here in New York City uh, at his hotel room at the Lowe's Plaza, where he and his family were staying, his apartment or residence, which was then undergoing renovation, And they executed a search warrant on a safety deposit box and for all of his electronic devices. The investigation is being conducted by the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York. Special Counsel Mueller's office is not involved in this investigation, and they referred information to the U.S. Attorney's uh, Office several months ago. It's not clear what information uh, Special Counsel Mueller had at the time, But it's clear that since the time of the referral, the U.S. Attorney's Office has been conducting a full-throated criminal investigation over the last several months. The search warrants that were executed were part of this same criminal investigation being conducted by the U.S. Attorney's Office, not Special Counsel Mueller's office. From press reports, we're learning a lot more about the scope of the investigation. So the criminal investigation here in New York is being handled by the Public Corruption Office in the U.S. Attorney's Office, which means that there's likely to be some involvement with local or potential uh, government officials like President Trump. At this time, we're not sure of the full scope, but this is the interesting issue to watch as subpoenas and other investigation steps are taken. And also, the investigation appears to be a lot broader than just the payment of hush money or entry into the non-disclosure agreements with Stormy Daniels, Barbara McDougal, and potentially other persons. Mr. Cohen's business investments and operations appear to include a longtime taxi medallion business and other areas of investment, which have nothing to do with President Trump or the Trump Organization. The list of potential criminal violations include bank fraud, wire fraud, and illegal campaign contributions. Now, bank fraud allegations can arise in a number of contexts beyond what the press reports have focused on, that Cohen took out an equity loan, a home equity uh, loan line of credit, uh, and in the application apparently uh, falsely indicated the purpose of the loan. Uh, and the true purpose was supposedly to pay off Stormy Daniels, assuming any of this is uh, actually correct. Also, the focus on the illegal campaign contributions issue is very important. Cohen's, for example, his October 2016 payment to Stormy Daniels for the nondisclosure agreement may have violated the Federal Election Campaign Act. There are many parallels here to the 2011 criminal case against uh, Governor John Edwards when two benefactors of his uh, paid uh, real hunter, uh, the mistress, to, uh, Governor Edwards, to buy her silence. 
The question under the law is whether the payments constitute contributions uh, under federal election law. And the definition of a contribution is any gift, subscription, loan, advance, or deposit of money or anything of value made by any person for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office. Importantly, there's no requirement that a contribution be labeled as such or that the money actually pass through a campaign's bank accounts or, uh, or accounts in any way. A third party's payment, for example, of a candidate's campaign or personal expense qualifies as a contribution. Um, candidates may spend personal funds, for example, to support their campaign, and importantly, these contributions are not subject to the $2,700 per person per election limit applicable to other donors. But these contributions still must be disclosed and properly reported on FEC filings. At trial in the Edwards case, uh, the reason the, the trial sort of faltered and Edwards was acquitted ultimately was because prosecutors were unable to prove that the wealthy benefactors' payments were done for the purpose of influencing the 2008 election, as opposed to helping uh, their friend Edwards or just being you know nice to Edwards uh, at that point. So. The timing of the payments is really important in the in the uh, in the Edwards context. There were there was evidence that the defense argued to the jury that the payments were made uh, in 2006, uh, way before the election, and therefore were not done with the intent to influence the election. Here, the timing of Cohen's payment in October of 2016, and the apparent connection to the November 2016 election may be sufficient to sort of tie the payment to the illegal contribution uh, language and definition. Even if President Trump, however, paid the money to Cohen, who in turn then paid um, Stormy Daniels, uh, the contribution had to be disclosed uh, because it would have been something that, let's say, President Trump paid for on his own. So a recent filing by Cohen's lawyers sought a temporary restraining order against a government review of the documents and appointment of a special master to supervise the review process in order to protect claims of attorney-client privilege. Interestingly, from the court filings and press reports about the hearing, there seems to be a big disagreement as to the number of potentially attorney-client privilege documents. What a surprise. Cohen's lawyers claim that there were hundreds of thousands of potentially privileged documents while the government disclosed that Cohen was conducting more business rather than dispensing legal advice and services. In fact, from the court filings, the government claimed that Cohen had only one legal client, and that was President Trump and his, and his organization, and that most of his activities related to uh, other issues uh, and business issues. So a significant portion of the documents are not even arguably related to providing legal advice and services. Indeed, the government disclosed, and this is interesting, that it had secured copies of Cohen's emails earlier in the investigation and reviewed them. The review revealed no emails with President Trump and very little, if any, privileged communications. The government's representations in this regard are significant in terms of going forward to review the documents that they have seen. One other important point surrounding the search warrants. There is a clear indication that the government had to move quickly to execute the warrants because Cohen was, in fact, in the process of destroying evidence and records. Again, this fact is significant. 
As time goes on, I expect that this investigation will morph into a full-blown corruption and fraud criminal prosecution where Cohen and potentially others will face serious charges. We're just at the beginning of a big story. Now, interestingly, we're also hearing that that President Trump and his lawyers are more concerned about this investigation than they are about the Russia investigation. Well, time will tell. We'll see how, uh, how big this thing actually turns. So now let's get back to the search warrants themselves, and I wanted to go through sort of the uh, process here Um, and the unusual, if there are any unusual aspects of a search warrant at an attorney's office. First, it is not unusual to execute a search warrant at an attorney's office or other premises when the attorney is the subject of a criminal investigation. That's the big fact here. Cohen is a subject, meaning that his conduct is under criminal investigation. As a former federal prosecutor, I have to say we rarely executed such a search warrant, but it is not unheard of in a criminal investigation, especially when an attorney is the subject of a criminal investigation. Second, from recent press reports and a court filing by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, it appears that Special Counsel Mueller referred information about Cohen's potential involvement in criminal activity several months before the search warrants were executed. Such referral was appropriate under Special Counsel uh, processes and regulations since the Special Counsel did not have authority, nor should he have sought it, to investigate Cohen unless there was some connection to the Russia matters that are within his jurisdiction. To obtain a search warrant at an attorney's office and related locations, the U.S. Attorney's Manual provides specific procedures for internal review and approval prior to the presentation of the warrant to a judicial officer. Section 9-13.420 of the U.S. Attorney's Manual applies to searches of premises of subject attorneys. And subject, again, means not that they use a witness, but that his conduct itself is under investigation. Based on the ongoing investigation, Cohen was clearly a subject of an ongoing uh, criminal grand jury investigation. In the beginning of this section in the grand uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, it says, "Quote: Because of the potential effects of this type of search on legitimate attorney-client relationships, and because of the possibility that during such a search the government may encounter material protected by a legitimate claim of privilege, it is important that close control be exercised over this type of search." So the guidelines for such a search, and this is the internal approval and the execution guidelines, have to be followed, and these include the following issues have to be addressed. Alternatives to search warrants. In order to avoid impacting a valid attorney-client relationship, prosecutors have to, quote, take the least intrusive approach, close quote, and consideration should be given to obtain information from other sources, including use of subpoenas, unless such efforts could compromise the criminal investigation. Well, one of the important facts here under this uh, alternatives approach is, number one, they already had got uh, used subpoenas to get some information, but the question is, why couldn't they use a subpoena? And on this, uh, on this factor, the important evidence that the government proffered is that Cohen was in the process of destroying documents. And uh, putting a subpoena out there in that face of those facts would be significant. 
and would probably be futile. And so that was why the government moved to the issue of executing search warrants. A search warrant for a lawyer's premises has to be uh, also, this is the second requirement, authorized by the U.S. attorney here in uh, New York or a relevant assistant attorney general like for the criminal division if, quote, there is a strong need for the information or material and less intrusive means have been considered and rejected, close quote. Number three, prior consultation. Separate from the authorization requirement, a federal prosecutor should consult with the U.S. Justice Department's criminal division. Four, safeguarding procedure. A federal prosecutor must employ adequate precautions to ensure that the materials are reviewed for privilege claims and that any privileged documents are returned to the attorney from whom they were seized. And finally, conducting the search. But before we get to that, and the requirements for conducting the search, um, an application has to be reviewed. An There's a form for this application internally that has to be completed by the prosecuting attorneys. And then it is reviewed, obviously, internally at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And then it is sent to the Justice Department, uh, where it's viewed, uh, reviewed by the Office of Enforcement Operations, which is a separate unit that reviews Title III applications, other types of criminal types processes uh, as well. And then it is then ultimately uh, recommended to the, the head of the criminal division at that point. Uh, so you do need to get approval from the OEO, it's called, and they're a very professional group of people who review these kinds of materials and ask the tough questions. So now let's go back to conducting the search. The search warrant has to be drawn specifically as possible, as specific as possible to minimize the need to search and review privileged materials. So to protect the attorney-client privilege, and you've heard this term being used, a privilege or taint team should be designated. That consists of agents and lawyers who have no involvement in the underlying criminal investigation. The privilege team is instructed on procedures to minimize the intrusion into privileged material and should ensure that there is no disclosure to the investigation or prosecution team. So you have a separate group of agents and lawyers who are uh, responsible for this. The privilege team reviews the documents and other materials to ensure that privileged material is not disclosed. Assuming the search warrant application meets the requirements of this provision and provides specific probable cause for the search of each location, FBI agents have to present the materials to a judicial officer who is likely to devote significant attention to the basis for the search warrant. I mean, magistrates or judges know that these are important, that these are sensitive, and they were, and obviously given the circumstances here, you know that they took, uh, it was carefully reviewed, uh, fly-specced to make sure that there are no problems. Given the sensitivity of this process, though, FBI agents and federal prosecutors are well-versed in this process, particularly in the Southern District of New York. They uh, conduct warrants like this on a number of occasions, and uh, they know the process. Uh, there's case law in support of the way that they handle this, and if they did it professionally like they usually do, we're not going to see any problems. The agents and prosecutors are acutely aware of the risks of the search warrant and typically document carefully the process knowing that the actions they take will be subject to, obviously, subsequent challenge by defense attorneys, and ultimately judicial review by a trial judge 
who's handling any criminal case that comes uh, arises out of this. So as I mentioned, Cohen is seeking to block government review of the seized materials. Uh, given the proceedings so far, uh, the government has the better of the argument about uh, Cohen's unusual application, and I expect the court to rule in the government's favor. Judge Wood in New York, who is handling the matter, has demanded that Cohen appear in court on Monday, uh, and that would be the 16th at 2 p.m. of April, to provide a list of clients needed to evaluate the potential attorney-client claims. It should be an interesting hearing. It'll be interesting how many clients he claims to have. And uh, what could also occur, which would be really interesting, is if the judge actually tries to question Cohen about this issue, uh, he could and should probably conceivably take the Fifth Amendment. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, the judge will conduct uh, the inquiry through counsel so that, uh, so that Cohen doesn't get put into that situation. It's an interesting case and an interesting uh, turn of events. Uh, and we will keep following this matter and keep you posted as we go along. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.